Okay. If you have Bibles with you, or if you have a Bible app on your phone or tablet, please open up to Galatians chapter 6. Today we begin our look at the final chapter in Paul's letter to the Galatians. The overall theme of this letter has been the grace and the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. A particular focus is the assertion made by Paul's detractors that in order to be a good Christian, that the Galatians needed first to become good Jews. Specifically, that they needed to be circumcised. And Paul's letter counters that argument brilliantly. Paul traveled on his missionary journeys preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That men and women enter into salvation, a relationship with God, by grace through faith. And then as he would leave one town to go to the next on his missionary journeys, Jewish believers, what Paul referred to as false believers, would follow behind him town after town, and they would sow weeds <laughs> among the wheat. They would sow lies among the truth. And apparently they, they were rather convincing in their argument to talk the Galatians into embracing the law and rejecting grace. And so Paul's writing, the word's gotten back to him about these lies that are being spoken to the Galatians, as well as a slew of false accusations made against Paul. And so Paul writes back to them. And I got to tell you what, he writes back to them passionately. <laughs> he is fired up. Of all of Paul's letters, Galatians is far and away his most intense and his most passionate. So today we begin chapter 6, and as I looked over chapter 6 in preparation, it kind of had this feel to me. That chapter 6 is kind of a collection of final thoughts that someone would tag on to the end of a letter after it's already been a long letter. He could have taken chapter 6 and probably expounded it into many other chapters, but it really did have the feel of, I'm getting to the end of my letter, but oh yeah, this, and oh yeah, this, and oh yeah, this, and oh yeah, this. And so this morning, we'll look at the first 10, cha 10 verses of chapter 6, and I'm going to do my best to kind of thread them uh, together. Some of the things Paul has written in chapter 10 um, have been misunderstood, can easily be misunderstood if you, if you take verses out of context. If you cherry pick among these first 10 verses, we can actually believe the very opposite of the truth that Paul is communicating us uh, here in the whole book of Galatians. And so um, I'm going to take special emphasis to communicate within the context of the whole letter so that we can get to the truth of what Paul's actually saying. Let's begin with verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. The message of the gospel 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of redemption. It's a redemptive gospel. It's not punitive. The gospel is redemptive and not punitive. Jesus is all about restoration. He's all about restoration. He's known as the Redeemer. I like what Chris Ballatin of Bethel Church in Redding, California says. He says, if you don't have a redemptive answer, you don't have the answer. If the only answer you got is punitive, <laughs> if it lacks redemption, if you don't have a redemptive answer, you don't have the answer. I wholeheartedly agree. In the kingdom of God, if we don't have an answer that leads to restoration, then we don't have the answer. We don't have God's answer. And Jesus modeled this truth for us, this truth in, in Galatians 6.1, that if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Jesus modeled it perfectly for us in John chapter 8. By chapter 8, if you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus has had confrontation after confrontation after confrontation with the religious leaders of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests. They've just clashed over and over again. I think in 10 of the first 11 chapters Jesus of, God, of John's Gospel, Jesus has some type of conflict with the Pharisees. So by the time you get to, you get to chapter 8 of John, uh, the Pharisees are scheming in every way possible just to get him. They, they want to trick him. They want to fool him. They want to snare him in a trap. They want to prove their rightness and prove just how wrong this upstart troublemaker Jesus really is. And so with that intent in mind, they find this woman caught in the very act of adultery, not the guy, but the woman caught in the very act of adultery, and they bring her before Jesus. This is what verses, the second half of verse 4 and verse 5 of John 8 says. This is what the Pharisees say to Jesus. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They're trying to trap him. And as usual, Jesus sees right through it, right? Here's a, here's a great picture of a clash between the law of Moses and grace. Between a punitive message and redemption. Verses 6 and to 8, Jesus responds. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down on the ground and wrote, Don't you just love Jesus? Don't you just love him? I love this. I love it. The rest of the account goes on like this, verses 9 to 11. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, probably because they were acutely aware of how long a list of sins they had. At this, those who began to go away 
those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Restoration. Not punitive. If the message of the gospel is punitive, Jesus would have been the first one to whack her with a stone, right? No. What did he do? He covered her. He protected her. The exact opposite of what the, the religious leaders did. Exploit her. Why? So that they could win a theological debate. It's just wicked, man. It's just evil. It's, what Jesus did is redemption, not punishment. It's restorative, not punitive. This woman was caught in sin. And Jesus, who lives in perfect harmony with the Spirit, restores her. And he restores her with the utmost gentleness. And Paul, in Galatians 6.1, exhorts us to go and do likewise. Pastor the church once, and we were there about six months, new pastor of this church. And I get a phone call one day where a very angry husband says, your associate pastor is having an affair with my wife. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> what are we going to do? God in his infinite wisdom, a month earlier, had me begin teaching a series of messages on the fruit of the Spirit. We covered that last week. And I, spent, I spent four weeks on the first one, on love. So our people were crying. And the people of that church so loved both these couples so well that one couple was able to go and get therapy so that nine months later I was able to oversee uh, the renewal of the wedding vows. And the other couple was loved so well that they never left the church. They never left the church. We worked not to punish them for what was obviously a bad thing. They were literally caught in sin. And I have, I have such a heart for the, for the elders of that church and for the way the people of that church responded. They took Galatians 6.1 to heart. People were caught in sin. And our whole goal, our whole objective was not to punish anybody but to see them restored, and restored gently. And they were. It took a while. It took hard work. But the end result was restorative, and not punitive. The Greek word used here for restore is katatismo. Katatismo. It's a verb, and it means to put in order, or to restore to a former condition. It's actually a medical term, and it's used for setting a fractured or dislocated bone. In Matthew 119, it was also used by the apostles when it's referred to, depending on which translation you use, as mending or preparing their nets. So how do you set a bone? How do you repair nets? Well, you do it carefully. And that's, that's what we're supposed to do 
when we restore people. We do it gently, and we do it with care. And Paul adds this warning at the end of verse 1. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. What does he mean there? Well, I tell you what. I think the message gets it right here. Listen to the message translation on it. If someone falls in sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. Right? Right? Man, that just lands in my heart. Eliot's commentary for English readers echoes what the message is communicating when it says, in other words, on its commentary on this, on this part of verse 1, in other words, do unto others as ye would they should do unto you. You too are liable to fail. And then you would be glad of the same gentle restoration. Right? Why should we restore other people gently? Because a day may come where we too will need that same gentleness. This understanding makes sense, especially, again, in light of the context of the whole letter, and I think it fits well with the next verse. Verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Right? So, when, when someone has a broken bone, if someone has a broken leg, and you're going to wheel them into... You're going to take them over to QEH to be treated, right? You may have to carry them in there. <laughs> you may have to help carry them into the car or out of the car and into a wheelchair and roll them in. You help them carry the burden. Why? Because they can't carry it themselves. We carry each other's burden. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? We all know this by now, right? It's to love one another. Jesus made this abundantly clear. He met with his disciples in the upper room just before the crucifixion. In that final meal, he, he met with his closest friends and he told them the most important of all important things. Because he knew what was about to happen. And in verses 34 and 35 of verse 13, this is what Jesus said to them. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. What we see in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, are the very practical applications of that love. Hey, it's easy to love someone when everybody's doing right things right. When does love get tested? And somebody's either doing right things wrong or they're just doing wrong things wrong. So what to do unto others that you would have them do unto you. Love one another gently. Love one another well. Especially when someone has messed up badly and gotten caught in the process. In Luke 4, Jesus gave us his mission statement. He told us that he came to bind up broken hearts, open blind eyes, and set captives free. That's the work of redemption. That's the work of restoration. That's not punishment. There's no punishment in setting captives free. There's no punishment in opening up blind eyes 
There's no punishment in binding up broken hearts. There's no punishment. And that's exactly what Jesus communicated to Nicodemus when he and that, and that questioning Pharisee, curious Pharisee, open-minded Pharisee, met one-on-one with Jesus. And that's the message Jesus communicated to him when he said in John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but save the world through him. Redemption, not punishment. Verse 3. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Guys, you know what the problem is with deception? You don't know you're deceived. (laughs) You think you know what you're doing is the right thing, but it's not. John Paul Jackson used to say that we are vulnerable to deception when there's something we want. When there's a want to in there. (laughs) When there's that hook of a want to, it's astonishing how we can excuse away, explain away, justify, rationalize, even the worst of decisions. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but you're deceived. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure Proverbs is replete. So he writes in verse 3, if anyone thinks there's something, when they are not, they deceive them, deceive themselves. Again, I think the message, a translation communicates the heart of this verse well when it says, if you think you are too good for that, you're badly deceived. If you think it's beneath you to love a brother or sister caught in sin, if you think it's beneath you to restore them gently, then you're badly deceived. And to that end, Each of us should test ourselves, which brings us to verse 4. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, not comparing themselves to anyone else. It puts an end to the deceptive voice in our heads that may say, Hey, I might be bad. I'm not as bad as that guy. (laughs) Right? Right? It seems like Paul was drawing on the same inspiration he had for Philippians 2, 1 to 4, when he, when he wrote verse 4. This is, this is those verses from Philippians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. <laughs> Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Man, I've learned a few things on my journey. I've learned just how ugly pride can be. Man, it's ugly. Pride's ugly. It's ugly in the church. It's especially ugly in followers of Jesus. And I've learned that not only is pride my enemy, but humility is my friend. Humility is a great friend. Humility keeps me out of trouble. And when I find myself in trouble, humility gets me out of trouble. 
He's a good friend to take on the journey with you. Pride, pride can take the smallest problem and explode it into the biggest problem. Pride's wicked. You know what? If you boil down every sin that a person could commit, I bet you when you get to the bottom of it, what you have left is pride. One way, shape, form, or another. I need to be right. I need to look right. I can't admit that I'm wrong. And small problems become big problems. Nearly everyone I know, nearly everyone I've ever met, the bosses I've had, the leaders I've had, the teachers I had, my parents, my wife, <laughs> even my kids, everyone responds well to humility. Everybody. Hardly anyone responds well to pride. When we act in pride, or when someone comes at us with their pride, you can't help but bristle. And you grit your teeth. Humility begets humility. Pride begets pride. Verse 5. Each of you should carry your own load. Each of you should carry your own load. Wait a minute. What did you just tell me back in verse 2? Is there a contradiction here? Galatians 6.2, Paul writes, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. And in Galatians 6.5, he says, For each of you should carry their own load. Is Paul speaking out of both sides of his mouth? No, of course not. Paul might be one of the most brilliant minds that ever lived. The burdens of verse 2 refers to the brokenness or the weaknesses of one caught in sin. It's talking about empathy and compassion. The load, rever the load referred to in verse 5 is speaking about employment or one's life's work. And verse 6 makes that application, the context of verse 5, in light of verse 6, makes it clear that, yes, Paul's speaking about someone carrying their own burden, doing, doing their own job. Because he refers to his job in the next sentence. Verse 6. Nevertheless, connected to my last phrase, connected to my last sentence, which said, each of you should carry your own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share in the good things of the instructor. Right? We're talking about, we're talking about finances here. We're talking about goods and services. We're talking about you doing your work and getting paid for it, and me doing my work and getting paid for it. Here Paul's saying that it's appropriate for them to support him because Paul's their instructor. And he makes that point crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5. You can read it on your own. Moving on, verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> Again, he addresses deception. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to the flesh, from the flesh, will reap, this, reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. Hmm. Now, earlier on in this series, I've told you that the gospel of grace trumps karma. You guys, some of you guys remember me saying that. The gospel of grace is greater and more powerful than karma. 
Is Paul saying otherwise here? Is Paul actually espousing karma? That you do good to get good and you do bad to get bad? Are we now back to a performance-based Christianity? Are we back to salvation by works and not salvation by grace? No, absolutely not. It, that, that interpretation of verses 7 and 8 doesn't fit with the rest of the letter. It doesn't fit with the rest of Paul's writing. So what is he saying here? Well, this is where context is vitally important in studying the word or in teaching the word. In the context of this letter, what is the flesh and what is the spirit? In this letter, the flesh is is in reference to the law, to living by the law. It's in reference to relating to God by keeping the, the law. It's salvation by good works. The Spirit in this context speaks about the new covenant, about relating with God through the Spirit, through the work of Jesus, by faith, through grace. You've got to read the whole letter. He uses the same, um, these, these very same words, these very same contradicting positions, flesh and spirit, again and again throughout the letter. And in every instance, he's referring to the works of the flesh by keeping the law versus the work of the spirit, which is a relationship based upon the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. So he's not saying the opposite of that now. He's saying that if you live to the flesh, you'll reap destruction because there is no salvation by the keeping of the law. But if you sow to the Spirit and you embrace the the gospel of grace and that loving relationship with Almighty God, then what you will, will reap from that is eternal life. Are you getting it? Because I'll try to find five or six other ways to try and communicate that very same truth. Am I flying over your heads? No. He's not saying do good to get good and do bad to get bad. He's saying give up trying to find salvation by works of the flesh and instead live by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit now, which lives inside of you and embrace the truth of the gospel of grace. So when Paul uses the phrase, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction, he's speaking about living according to religious law, specifically circumcision, which he covered extensively and rather passionately in the last chapter. When he says, so to the, so, whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life, he's talking about salvation by grace. Man, I tell you what, I've seen Christians, even learned Christians, infamously use Scripture out of context, and in so doing, rob the gospel of its power. I've heard people use verse 7 and 8 of Galatians 6 out of context to communicate something that is 100% the opposite of everything that Paul tried to communicate in the letter. 
Guys, listen to me. Context matters. If we want the truth, we've got to read Scripture within its context and seek out the author's original intent. We've got to do it that way. Otherwise, we get all messed up. Let's finish up with verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You guys ever get tired? How many of you guys have been a Christian for 10 years? How many have been 10 years or longer? Right. Some of you guys, you've been doing this a long time. Me too. I've been a Christian for more than 40 years, a pastor for more than 30. I get tired, man. I get tired sometimes. I get burnt out. How about you? There are times I get burnt out. Sometimes I need a break. Sometimes I become weary in doing good. And I know you do too. I've heard... Graham Cook, prophetic minister, brilliant man. I've heard Graham, I, matter of fact, Graham Cook was here on Prince Edward Island some many years ago. I think Summerside had him in, before I got there. Love Graham Cook. I think he's one of the few prophetic guys out there who get what a new covenant prophet's supposed to be, and they get the message of love and grace. They, he gets it. He gets it, and guys like Sean Boltz, he gets it too. Too many of the prophetic guys out there, they're still working under an old covenant model. Hell, fire, and brimstone. They hear God, but it gets filtered through their, their misunderstanding of the gospel. If I can humbly say that. And I like these guys. Anyway, back to Graham Cook. Graham Cook says, rest is a weapon. Man, I wholeheartedly agree. It is wise to rest. It will help prevent us from giving up. Heck, man, even a boxer gets a break in between rounds, right? Some of you need to hear the bell ding. You know? <laughs> ding, ding. Go sit on the stool for a little while. Catch your breath. The fight will be waiting for you. <laughs> so for those among us who have been serving sacrificially, Year after year, decade after decade. Man, I thank you. I thank you for your faithful service, for your sacrificial service to God and to his kingdom, and even to his church. Thank you. And I want to encourage you with Paul's words here in Galatians chapter 6. At the proper time, you will reap a harvest. Maybe you're wondering, hey, when am I going to see some fruit for my labor? When's my hard work going to pay off? I want you to know that God is not forgotten. God knows. God remembers. And this is true. Good seed and good soil will bring a good harvest. And so until that day, from this day until that, Galatians 6.10 As we have opportunity, 
Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Let's pray. Maybe we can have the worship team come back up. Lord, will you so fill us with your love and your grace. Let your love and grace be so poured in and pressed down, shaken together, until it truly is running over. Lord, may the truth of the gospel, may the truth of your grace, shatter the lies we believe about performance-based Christianity or salvation by good works. Set us free, Lord. I pray that we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. Lord, I pray especially this morning for those of us who have been entangled in the traps of pride and sin. Set us free, Lord. Open our eyes. Open our eyes and set us free. Lord, I pray that you would make us a truly humble people and a truly loving community of people. Lord, I pray that you would eradicate deception from our, from our lives. Just eradicate it. I pray that you, you pull back the veil. I have, I have the picture in my mind of the, the movie The Wizard of, the, of Oz when, when they got a peek behind the veil and they, they saw that this terrifying, this terrifying wizard was nothing but a little old man. Lord, pull back the veil that we would no longer be deceived. That the truth would be revealed to us and the deception would be absolutely sapped of its power. I pray that our lives would be good seed in good soil. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us all the grace we need that we could live to see the harvest of our lives. And I ask this in Jesus' name. If anybody has a need for prayer this morning, please don't leave without getting prayer. Come forward, and there will be people up front here to help pray for you uh, as these guys lead us in a final song. Mm -hmm.